right, good morning. I love hearing you guys sing in this room. It echoes. It's, uh, it's a joy. Uh, my name is Jake. If we haven't met before, I'm one of the pastors down at our Cedar Rapids campus, and it's, it's an honor. I'm always uh, glad to be here with you and excited to be with you here today because we're going to start our new book study uh, in James. So if you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and find the book of James. It's towards the back. If you need to use the table of contents, that's okay. Uh, the book of James. And we're going to be here for a while. We're going to spend 22 weeks in James, and it's only five chapters. So we're going to take a pretty slow march uh, through this book, uh, but we're excited to do that. James is, uh, let's just jump right in. James is one of the earliest uh, New Testament books that we have. In fact, it's probably the earliest New Testament book that we have, uh, and it was written during a time when uh, Christianity was largely just a sect of Judaism. Uh, Jesus was a Jewish Messiah. Jews came to faith in him, and it just kind of Christianity in that early days was just Jewish people that looked at Jesus and said, yeah, he's our Messiah. Uh, this was written before Acts 15. Uh, so if you're familiar with the book of Acts, what happens in Acts 15 is they have this big Jerusalem council where they get together and say, what do we do about all the Gentiles that are coming uh, to faith? And they tried to solve that problem. Uh, this is a, a really practical book. Uh, there's a higher percentage of imperatives in this book than any other New Testament book. So what that means is there's a lot of commands. Uh, James, in, a, in a, just five chapters, is going to tell us to do a lot of stuff and give us a lot of directions. So we're going to be challenged uh, as we go through this. It's not just do you have faith, but is your faith working? Like, is it shaping your life? Is it shaping the way that you live? And James is going to challenge us in that. And I don't know as a church if we talk enough about a transformed life. Um, the way the Bible talks about a transformed life. Like you, you were this way, you came to faith in Christ, and now you live differently. You, you act differently. You function like Christ transformed your life. I don't know if we talk enough about that, or at least as much as the Bible does. Uh, we like to talk about grace and forgiveness, and those are amazing truths that we should be talking about. But sometimes I think we just stay there because it makes us feel comfortable in our sin. Well, there's grace for that. There's forgiveness for that. And we don't connect the dots between the grace of God and our transformed lives. Well, James does connect those dots. So he's going to really press on us like, okay, you're a follower of Christ. Therefore, like, let's actually follow him. Let's, let's live this out. So an extremely challenging book. Um, but I just pray that we would, as a church, grow and our closeness and our maturity uh, to Christ as we work through this book. So uh, let's just uh, jump right in. We're going to look at the first four verses. And because we're going pretty slow, uh, we can kind of dig in a little bit more and look at words and prepositions and see what things mean and try to dig into the meaning. So I would encourage you, if you're not comfortable uh, uh, underlining and marking up your Bible, pick up the James uh, scripture journals, because uh, we're going to go slow. We're going to take notes. If you're comfortable, mark up your Bible, underline, circle things as we kind of get in and see what James is talking about. Sound good? All right. Uh, James gets right after it, so that's what we're going to do. James doesn't kind of have all the niceties in the introduction that Paul tends to have. He skips kind of, you know, Paul will get these uh, greetings and thanksgiving and opening prayer, but James just kind of just here's who I am, here's who you are, greetings, let's go. And he just kind of jumps into it. So we're going to jump into it, and then we'll kind of back up and see, like, okay, what is it that James wants us to, to be talking about with us here? So here's the first two verses. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. 
And that's all the greetings he's going to give us. Then he goes, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So you see that? It's like, hey, this is who I am. This is who you are. Greetings. Now I want to talk to you about how you're handling difficult situations. Let's just get right to it. And you're going through hard stuff. But I want to challenge you about uh, how your attitude is in those hard things that you're doing. Now, he does start off by introducing himself. And we'll get back to that. But it's extremely important. So if you have a pen underline James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's going to be an important thing that we want to circle back to. And then he addresses who he's talking to. It's the 12 tribes of the dispersion. The 12 tribes, that's a loaded Old Testament phrase. And it's the 12 tribes of who? Israel, right. Yeah, you guys get bonus points. Get your sash on your wanna badge or something. It's the, it's the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, before Israel was a nation, it was a man. Jacob, right? Jacob's name was changed to Israel, and Jacob had 12 sons, and this was uh, how it, it came about. So he's saying, and if you're familiar with the story of Jacob, uh, Jacob had a twin brother for bonus points, Esau, right? Uh, but Jacob was the younger of the two, so it should have been Esau, but it was Jacob because God chose Jacob. So this is a loaded statement when he says, to the 12 tribes, he's saying, I'm talking to the chosen people of God. That's, that's who I'm addressing here, the chosen people of God. And then he says, in the dispersion. And that kind of uh, came to mean the land outside of Palestine. So these were, uh, he's talking to Jewish Christians who, due to persecution, have fled Jerusalem. So if you remember in, in Acts, uh, Pentecost, they're all like, Jesus has been crucified, he's raised again, he told us to stay in Jerusalem, wait for him, we're in the upper room, we're praying, Uh, Holy Spirit comes, Peter gives this powerful message, Uh, 3,000 people uh, come to faith, the church is born, it's thriving, it would be... uh, an amazing experience to be a part of that early church movement. Like they had things in common. They were selling their possessions. They were trying to support and care for one another. They were devoted, devoted to the apostles' teaching, to prayer, to one another, to breaking of bread, like this community that they had. And it said, day by day, the Lord was adding to their number, those who were being saved. Can you imagine, like, Who's God going to save today? I don't know. Who's God going to save tomorrow? Like somebody, like people are coming to faith. And it's this exciting time. But then you get a little further and we get introduced to a, a character, Saul, who we know as the Apostle Paul. But before Paul was a follower of Jesus, he was a persecutor of the church. Uh, and he was kind of overseeing the martyr of Stephen, who was one of the leaders in that early church. And he was going in and out of people's houses, kind of dragging them out and bringing persecution to Christians in Jerusalem. So some Christians fled Jerusalem. That's who James is writing to. These Christians who fled. Now, the reason we give you that background is here's what we need to understand. The people that are getting this letter, their life is really hard. They left their homes. They left their jobs. They left their community. They have a a new level of instability, uh, economic hardship, uh, persecution. The people getting this letter, their life is hard. Now, maybe you haven't had to flee your home because of violence. Uh, maybe you have. I've talked to some families in our church. They're refugees. It's like, that's my story. In the middle of the night, they came in with machine guns, and we fled into the jungle. And now they're here because of a refugee program. Like, that, that is their story. Um, chances are that's probably not yours. But that doesn't mean that we're not familiar with hardship. 
This isn't like a comparison of, of whose hardship is most hard. He even says, of various kinds. Like, we all know what hardship and difficulty ha- is like. Like, trials happen. We're all going to go through it. If you don't know, like, if you can't say amen to life is hard, you soon will be able to do that. Like, just keep living. We will all face trials and difficulties. And when he says various kinds, he's like, go ahead and fill in your your trial there. It, like, it, it fits. Now, for them, they were facing persecution. They were facing poverty. These are all things that will come up as we work through the book of James. They were facing internal relational conflict. They were facing illness. Um, but, but you know you have your own hardship. You have your own trial. You have your own difficult things that you go through. Job loss, cancer, marital strife, uh, rebellious kids, referees not counting field goals that go through. Like, whatever it may be. See who your Iowa State fans are there, okay? Um, who, who watched the game? Okay, well, that's why that joke just flattened because there's like two people there. Like, like, what are you talking about? But you know your trials. Like, we all have difficulties. Here's the question. How are we supposed to respond to them? Or, or let me refine the question. How are Christians supposed to respond to trials? And the reason we say Christian, because who's he talking to? The 12 tribes, right? I'm talking to God's chosen people. He even says brothers. Like, count it all joy, brothers. Like, I'm talking to Christians. So, so how should Christians uniquely respond to trials and difficulties and hardships in life? But here's where the text gets tricky, because I don't think anyone would dispute that trials and hardships are a part of life, and we got to deal with them, and we'll have to go through them. But James says, count it all joy. Count it all joy my brothers, when you go through trials of various kinds. Now, I think if he would have said, hey, when you face trials of various kinds, toughen up, I think we would have been like, yeah, okay, I get that, James. Or if when, when you face trials of various kinds, support one another. Life's hard. I think we'd all be like, yeah, I get that. that I'm tracking with you. But count it all joy when you face trials of many kinds. And it's not like if, it's when. It's like when you fall into these trials, when, when it comes to you, like here's what I want you to do. Here's how I want you to respond. Count it all joy. Can we admit like that's a curveball? Like I don't know if I'm tracking with you. Like how, how do we do that? Because it's, it's not like any of us in here are against joy. <clears throat> like how dare you, James, want us to be joyful. No, we're not against joy. The, the trouble is connecting joy to trials. Like joy on my wedding day, joy when my kids are born, joy when I got the promotion, joy when I heard we're going on the vacation. Easy connection. I'm right there with you. Joy and hardship? Joy and difficulty? Joy and trials? I don't know how that works. Like, James, how do you even have the audacity to make that command? Because it's not a request. It's a command. How do you have the audacity to make that command? How does that happen? How, how do these people who, because of persecution, had to flee their home, their families, their jobs, to live in a foreign land, how does James look at them and say, here's how you need to respond to that. You need to be a little bit more joyful, guys. How does he, how does he muster up the audacity to do that? How, do, how would he look, or the scriptures look at our life and say, cancer, job loss, marital strife, difficulty, rebellious child, here's what you do, guys. Be more joyful about it. I mean, I, I just want to know, like, how, is that possible? How do we do that? And James is, is trying to give us a perspective. He's trying to give his audience a perspective, a, a, a lens to look through. That if you look at your trials through this lens, 
you'll even be able to hold on to some joy. Now, who would want to put on those glasses? Just me. I'm going to preach to myself then. You just, you're in the room, hear it then. All right, here we go. Let me look at all four verses, and we're going to kind of get a, a general structure of these four verses. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, here's a general kind of structure of these four verses. You have the author, uh, James. He introduces himself. You have the audience, uh, the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Then you have his greetings. Greetings. That's about as warm as James gets there. Then you have an exhortation or a command. Count it uh, all joy, my brothers. And then you have the time or the context for which that command is supposed to be lived out. When you meet trials of various kinds. And then you have the basis for the ability to live that out. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Then you have another exhortation, and let steadfastness have its full effect. And then you have the purpose. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, we're going to kind of work backwards towards this uh, command or call to joy. Um, And what he's saying is that these trials, especially towards the end here, let's read verse 4, and let steadfast have its full effect, that you may be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. What he's uh, saying here are that trials are a part of our maturity or maturing. Uh, Those words perfect, don't, don't think like perfect the way we think perfect, although it will lead to someday, or what the Bible talks about is like glorification, our perfection, when we get new bodies in heaven, and we don't struggle with sin anymore, glorious day, amen, anybody, okay, but until then, there's a, a maturing, or developing, or making whole, or bringing about our kind of, our, our maturity, now when we hear that word maturity, we ought to kind of perk up, because that's part of our mission statement, we want to raise up what? Mature disciples. So he's saying, hey, if we want to fulfill our mission, guess what, church? Trials are going to be a part of it. Like we should go through trials as a church, difficulties, because that's part of fulfilling our mission of maturity. So what's being said here is there's a promise that if we persist in faith, we will grow in godliness. Or more specifically, if we persist in faith through trials, we will grow in godliness. Now, Uh, We'll get to how we persist in faith in a bit. But part of the perspective that James is helping them see and helping us see is that trials is not just a part of life. Trials are a part of development. Trials are not just a part of life. Trials are a part of development. Like if I go fifth grade science class on you a little bit, like when a, a caterpillar goes into a cocoon before he comes out as a butterfly, what's that called? It's not in the Bible. Just it was in like... A chrysalis, right? I had to look it up, but it's a chrysalis. Uh, Here's the thing. If you cut that caterpillar butterfly out of the chrysalis too soon, you'll kill it. He, He won't be able to fly. The fight that that butterfly has to free himself from that chrysalis is how it develops the muscles to be able to fly. So what he's saying in nature, it's like part of that struggle is how that butterfly turns into a butterfly. Or let me put it this way. This is a little bit more convicting. Parents. 
Like we have kids. I'm a parent. I know what it's like. We want to kind of swoop in and protect our kid from going through anything difficulty or any trial or that coach yelled at him or this. He's not doing this. Or you kind of want to just jump in and protect your kid. You're not doing them any favors because trials are part of our development. And that's what James is saying. He knows this because he's looking at people that he loves uh, dear to him. And he's saying, you're going through difficult things. It's part of your development. God is using this to mature you, to develop you, to to grow you. Here's what we need to see. Trials are an opportunity to grow. Trials are an opportunity to grow. Now, hold on to that word opportunity. We'll come back to it. But it's not only an opportunity to grow. It's an opportunity to grow that God is ultimately behind. That he is sovereign over the trials that you are going through. So, when James introduces... To the 12 tribes, that is a loaded statement for people that know their Old Testament. He said, this is who you are, the 12 tribes. Like, you're the chosen people of God. But guess when or where or the context that those 12 sons turned into 12 tribes? When did Israel go from a family to a nation? Slavery. In captivity. Under oppression. He's like, you know those 12 tribes? When did they grow and get developed? Under hardship. So you're this scattered group of people, but God is not surprised by your persecution and you're fleeing Jerusalem. Like, this is all part of God's unfolding plan. He's in this. And I know it's not comfortable, but he's working. Like, he's doing stuff. He's developing you. He's growing you through this. That's the perspective that he's wanting them to have. Because notice there's like a, a language shift between something that's like, hey, this is kind of really just general and everybody goes through it to something pretty specific. Look back at verses 2 and 3. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, trials are just like general hardships, difficulties. He even says of various kinds, like we all go through them. But then he changes, he says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now, testing, that's a lot more specific. That's intentional. So what is it? Is it trials or is it testing? You betcha. And he's saying your, tr- your trials are God's testing. Like God is involved in the difficulties that we go through. And you may see them as trials, but there is a testing that is happening. Now testing, that word testing, is a word that's used to talk about the process of making metals pure. You could translate it like to approve genuine. So you'd heat up metals and the impurities would rise to the surface. You'd skim them off the top and you'd heat it up against and the impurities would rise to the top and you'd kind of skim them off. That's like the way that you would make metal pure. You'd purify it. And God is testing his people. You look throughout scripture, God tests his people. Abraham, Joseph, Israelites, David, Jesus. God tests his people. So listen, we got to get this. God is more interested in your development than your comfort. That's a paradigm shift. I want you to get this. God is more interested in your development than your comfort. And if you can get that, it'll change the way that you see hardships you face. God is more interested in your development than your comfort. He'll put you in the fire. Because he wants those impurities to be brought to the surface to be dealt with. God is more interested... In your development, in your comfort. But here's where the tension lies and where it gets difficult. When you're more interested in your comfort than your development, trials are going to be pretty tough. You will not be able to count it all joy. You will be devastated 
angry, feel robbed, mistreated. Because what you're longing for is your comfort. Listen, part of the refining nature of trials is that they reveal what needs to be dealt with. Just like that refining process. Like, let's put it in the fire. Let's see what comes to the surface. Let's see what needs to be skimmed off the top. What needs to uh, be gotten rid of for the sake of our purity. And the process of kind of removing impurities is the same thing that's happening in us spiritually with our trials. Because trials often attack idols. They often attack uh, a false security or a false identity. And when those trials attack those things, when something like that that we really treasure is threatened or taken away, it reveals the depth of our attachment. It reveals the depth of our idolatry. It reveals the depth of our false identity. I never knew how much I found my value in my job until I lost it. I never knew how ungrateful I was for all the simple blessings until God took my health away. I never knew how prayerless I really was until I had to walk through that marital conflict. Like it just kind of brings things to the surface. It reveals what we need to be working on. And it does it on purpose. Like it is God Almighty working on you. Like, yeah, let's get that to the surface. I want to, I want to get rid of that. I want to, but, but it's got to be exposed first because what's the ultimate goal? That you would be perfect and complete. And then this last phrase has really interested me. Lacking in nothing. Now that fr- uh, word lacking in nothing is actually a phrase that means to not be in want. Now sometimes trials teach us we don't need what we thought we needed. But when we hear that phrase, lacking nothing, what we can tend to think of is, well, I must be lacking something. And if I'm lacking something, I need something so I no longer lack something, right? I don't want to be lacking anything, so what do I need to get so that I don't lack anything? That's not what James is saying. Sometimes, to truly lack nothing, we need things taken away to realize, oh, I didn't really need that. That's not really where my security lies. I I don't really need that. Not, not when I have my Jesus. I didn't know that until I lost it, but I don't really need that. He's saying that to, to truly lack nothing and to be at that place where it's like, I don't want, right? Like, like Paul talks about in Philippians. Like, I, you know, I can be with plenty or I can be without. Like, I can know how to do all things through Christ who strengthens me. How did he learn that? In prison, Right? Those, those trials teach us that. So James is telling them, yeah, you're scattered. You lost your home. You lost your community. You lost your family. Persecution putted you out. But look at it this way. God is at work in you. And he's going to develop you and grow you into completion. And it's important to see God's sovereignty in our trials. It's really important to see God's sovereignty in our trials. Uh, look, look at Romans twenty-eight or 8, 28. It's a famous verse that gets quoted often, and it's one you should know. We've talked about it a lot. It says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. And just to state the obvious, all things mean all things. The, the hard things, the difficult things, the trials. And people love to quote 28 for comfort, but they tend to quote 28 without going to 29 to see what is the good 
that all things are working towards. Because if you don't know 29, you will replace your own good in there. Oh, it's working for whatever I desire, whatever I want. No, but there is a target for the good it's working towards. So let's read 28, 29 together. And we know that for those who love God, all things, the hard things, difficult things, work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, why? To be conformed to the image of his son. That's the goal. Like us being conformed into the image of his son. Us growing in our godliness. That's what he's after. Conformed to the image of his son. Do you want that? I mean, honestly. Would you be like, let, let's start with uh, your spouse. Do you, you want your spouse to be more like Jesus? Show of hands. Okay, some of you are like, nope, I love the sinner that he is. Right? You lied. Like, yes, we would want our spouse to be more like, like for you, would you want to be more like Jesus? I mean, could we really reject that? I mean, let me just put it this way. Jesus is better than you. Okay. So that's a step up. The more you look like Jesus, the better you're getting. And that's the goal of God's like, I'm trying to conform you and develop you to reflect my son more. And I think as Christians, we'd honestly say, yeah, I want that. But here's the thing. Trials help do that. Cancer can do that. A job loss can do that. Losing a loved one can do that. Relational conflict can help do that. But when we're more passionate about just our comfort and our success than actually being conformed to the image of Christ, well, then trials are only bad things. And we never see the good that God is doing through them. Because we don't really want to grow in patience. I just wanted that promotion. And I didn't get it because of this trial. It pulled me out of the running or whatever it is. And now I'm mad. And I didn't really want to grow in my contentment in Jesus Christ. I just wanted that perfect family. And he didn't keep his vows. And and now you're just ruined by it. You're not counting it all joy. You can't find any joy in that. You don't see what good could come out of that. How you could be shaped and developed through that. But if we're most passionate about being conformed to the image of Christ, then we're looking at trials through a different lens. If you're more interested in your development than your comfort, then you can rejoice in trials. Now, to be clear and fair, James is not saying the reason for our joy is our trials. He's not saying, enjoy cancer, enjoy marital difficulty. Like, that's not what he's saying. he's saying. He's not saying find joy in your trials in that way, like your trials are enjoyable. What he's saying is find joy in what your trials can produce in you. Your trials have spiritual value. You get me there? Your trials have spiritual value. They're the context in which we are shaped. Like going through this, this is going to teach you to pray. Going through this, this is going to teach you what uh, really being dependent on Christ looks like. Going through this is going to teach you to really be dependent on God's word daily. Like this is what's going to kind of develop in you. It's the context in which we're shaped. They present to us the opportunity to grow. Now, here's why I say opportunity. In this text, trials don't bring about maturity. Responding well to trials brings about maturity. There's a big difference. So that raises up two questions in my mind. What does responding well to trials look like? And then how do we actually do that? So uh, the first question is, what does it actually look like to respond well to trials? Let's go back to the structure of these four verses. What are the two exhortations or the two commands? 
count and let. Count it and let. Those are the verbs. Those are the commands that, that were given. Now, let's start with the second one. Uh, the second command is easy to miss because we don't see let as a very commanding verb. But here's what he says, verse 4. And let steadfastness have its full effect. Uh, basically, what he's saying is let the trial play out. Let it finish its work. Let it do its thing. We can be so quick to just get out from under any difficult hardship that we're having to go through uh, that we can miss what it's teaching us. But James is saying, hey, you've got to let that simmer. Your trial's like chili. Like you've got to just kind of let those flavors marinate. You've got to let it come together. It's like you don't want to pull out baked chicken too soon. You'll get sick. You can't cook, uh, eat undercooked chicken. Like let that thing cook. That's what he's saying. You're going through a trial right now. You're in the oven. You've got to let it do its thing. Listen, don't be in a hurry to just get out of hardships too quickly. If God is sovereign over it, which he is, let it have its full effect. Or, or put it this way. When you are in a trial, don't try to escape it until you've benefited from it. When you are in a trial, don't try to escape it until you've benefited from it. What I mean by that is don't try to escape it until you say, I've learned to pray through going through this. I have learned to be more dependent on God and his word through this. I have learned deeper contentment in Christ through this. Like, what, what is it, God, that you're teaching? But to have that kind of posture, be like, I want to sit in this trial, and I want to see what God's doing in my life through it, you have to actually believe that all things work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. You have to actually believe God is at work shaping people through the difficulties that we go through. Do you believe that? Like, could you take that posture? Do you have this attitude that there is a God who is at work even through the difficulties? Let me tell you a story. There's a story about a dad who had, uh, two, kind of an eccentric dad who had two kids. Uh, and he was worried about both of them for different reasons. One kid was like extremely pessimistic. And he was worried like, you're just going to just not see the good in this world. And he was worried about his other kid who was extremely optimistic and like, you're just going to be crushed by the realities of this world. So kind of how do I teach them a lesson? So he's like, I know. And he took his pessimistic kid and he shut him in a room and locked him in there and he filled the room with toys. Uh, And he's like, just have fun. Like, just go explore it. Enjoy yourself. But then he took his optimistic child and he shut him in a room and it was piled full of manure which is like okay you do that one uh he's like i'm gonna go do my work and he came back at the end of the day and he goes and checks on his pessimistic son and he comes in the door and he's not playing with any of the toys he's sitting in the corner kind of sad he's like what's the matter he's like dad all these toys they're plastic i may break them uh so i just didn't want to do anything because something would probably go wrong he's like well that didn't work out too well so he's like, i'll go check on the other son so he goes in there and there's manure splattered all over the walls and he doesn't see his son anywhere so he calls out for his son and out from the middle pile manure pops up his son he's like what are you doing he's like dad with all this manure in here there's got to be a pony somewhere he's just like looking for the pony right and sometimes we're just so much crap in our life that we're pessimistic we don't know what's going on find the pony like if you think god is in sovereign over all your difficulties and he's working to your good then you got to say like whatever difficulty or trial you're going through he's like God, what are you teaching me here? What do you have for me to learn? How do you want to grow me? Look for it. We got to be, let steadfastness have its full effect. And guys, steadfast doesn't mean passive waiting. The word steadfastness communicates an active persistence. Like I'm leaning into this trial. I'm looking for this pony. So what are we to be actively doing while we're waiting? Well, then you go to the first command. What do you say? What was it? 
Count. Yeah, we're to count. Now, that word count means to think or regard, uh, or it also has a meaning to lead or have authority over. Uh, This is a call to lead your mind when you find yourself in trials. Because we all know where our minds want to go when we're in trials, like to the darkest places. Like, I'm sure she doesn't love me anymore, and they probably don't even want me employed here, and I don't know. God's probably forgotten about it. Like, our minds go to the darkest places. And what he's saying is you need to have authority over your thoughts, especially in trials. Listen, when times are hard, lead your mind. When times are hard, lead your mind. Look back at 2 and 3. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for or because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. He's saying you have something to count because of what you know. Here's what you know. God is sovereign over your difficulties. He's at work even through your hardships. He's working all these things to our good, to, to our development. You know it. So in hard times, come back to what we know to be true about God. So we need to count and we need to let. We need to count on who God is his bigness, he's in control of everything, and then that should let, let us have an attitude of endurance to just kind of let the trial play out. Because these two things kind of serve each other, or one serves the other. Think of it like this. When trials come, rehearse your beliefs to enhance your endurance. When trials come, rehearse your beliefs to enhance your endurance. Count it. Count on what? What you know to be true about God. Come back to what you believe He's not forsaken you. He cares for you. He will develop you. He'll put you in the fire to reveal impurities, to deal with those, to grow you. And that will allow you to let it play out. Rehearse your beliefs to enhance your endurance. That's how you persist in faith. That's what we're being called to. That's what responding well looks like for a Christian in trials. Now the next question. How do we actually do that? (laughs) I mean, how do we have the heart and the posture to actually live that out? Because a trial doesn't come up to you nicely and just say, I'm about to enter your life. You get punched in the face by a trial, right? And by the prophet Mike Tyson said, everybody's got a game plan until they're punched in the face. Like a trial comes and you think, oh, yeah, I'll handle it great. Like, no, how do you actually handle and respond godly when a trial does punch you in the face? And there is a disposition or an attitude we have to have in order to actually be people who count it all joy when trials come. And James doesn't come right out and say it, but still, I think it may be the loudest point he's making in these first four verses. Go back to verse 1. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me tell you a little bit about James. James is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He was known as James the Just because of his excessive devotion to righteousness. James writing a letter to us about practical godliness would be like Dan Gable coming to speak to us about work ethic. He's got some credibility, okay? This is James the Just. He had an excessive devotion to godliness. Uh, James had a nickname of Old Camel Knees because of how often he spent time on his knees praying. You ever see a wrestler and they got those camel, that cauliflower ear? And you just see it and you're like, oh, you're a wrestler. Can you imagine seeing somebody looking at their knees and be like, oh, you pray a lot? That was James. Just devoted to prayer. Devoted to godliness. James uh, was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He was in charge there. And James also happened to be the half-brother of Jesus. Now, with all that, you might think he would introduce himself. James. Maybe you heard of my brother. James. 
I pray more than you do. James, the just. James, the guy in charge at headquarters. But he doesn't. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Greek, there are four or five words he could have used that could be translated servant. But he chose the one that shows the individual is utterly dependent on the master for food, clothing, housing, and everything. Like the better word to be translated, and maybe your version has it, is slave. James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how James, the leader of the church, the just, the guy who prays more than all of us, the brother of Jesus, chooses to introduce himself. Because a servant doesn't have an attitude of entitlement. And a person that is entitled gets wrecked by trials. Because when they come, they just feel or think, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve this. I deserve better than this. And they can never count it all joy when they face a trial because they're just so angry that they are actually in a trial. They're pounding on the door. Let me out of this stinky room instead of looking for the pony. But James models an attitude of servanthood. So maybe you would say that Jesus is your Savior. I, I hope that you would. But would you say that you're his servant? Would you say that you're his slave? Would you have the posture, whatever comes my way, have your way? Because when we face trials, we're supposed to count it all joy, trusting in God that he's over this and he's working in it through us to develop us. And we're supposed to just kind of let it play out. But how we're actually supposed to do that is humility. Humility. Humility is the soil of our heart that can actually receive a trial. Like, I'm not better than this. I don't deserve better than this. I deserve whatever my king brings my way. Humility is the soil of our heart that can receive God's sovereignty during trials in a way that can actually grow joy in the midst of them. It's like an oak tree that comes up through the sidewalk you ever see that? And you think, that is, an oak tree is not supposed to grow there. But somehow that acorn found a crack in the sidewalk. It got to the soil, and that, that was more powerful than the sidewalk. And people look at that and be like, that's not where a tree is supposed to grow. But it did. And when people look at you in the midst of your trial and they see joy, it's like, joy is not supposed to be there. You're not supposed to be in stage four and happy. You're not supposed to go through that kind of marital strife and have joy. But your heart found the promises of God. And outbursted forth through your trial is your joy. Like, I know my God is sovereign over this, and he's working. And he's, and he, yes, he's revealing impurities to deal with in my life. Praise God for this trial. In fact, I count it joy. Thank you, God, for working in my life. So if we could revise the big idea, I know it's a bit wordy, but here's what I would want it to say. When trials come, receive them with humility in order to rehearse your beliefs to enhance your endurance. And what, again, is the emotion that James attaches to this? Joy. Like Paul and Silas singing in prison. Joy. Like this unshakable joy in the midst of trials. I mean, we'd be lying if we said, yeah, I didn't want want that. 
Now, sometimes the Bible commands emotions. And we're like, how do you do that? Like, how, how can you command emotions? Like, you feel what you feel. But it, we're commanded to rejoice or to have joy. But I think James gives us a bit more insight into how we get there. Because technically, the command is not be joyful. The command is to count. And he's saying, when you count when, on what you know, when you consider, when you, when you have authority over your mind to take it to what you know to be true about God, that produces joy. That's, that, that's what produces joy. Guys, here's the good news. No matter what your trial is, the Christian always has good news to count on. In fact, let me go back to Romans 8 to show you where he goes in this. This is 8.32. I want you to remember what he's saying here. He says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that was raised. He who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, and he quotes this, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. He's saying, all that you see are trials. All that you see is our difficulty. All that you see is like, we're like sheep that's just getting persecuted and slaughtered. That's the only vantage point you have. But let me put some different lenses on you. And he goes, no, that is not our reality. In all these things, these things are the persecution, the trials that we're going through. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Guys, here's what we need to know. There will never be a trial a Christian will go through in which he or she does not have a direct path to joy-producing news. If you think about it which we're being commanded to do. Count it. Consider it. Think like have authority over your mind. Go there. Think about it. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for you, can job loss wreck you? Follow the logic. If he did not spare his own son but sent him to the cross for us, do you think God did all that only to let cancer be the end of you? To destroy you? If he sent his son to the cross to die for you, You think that relational conflict is what's going to bring you down? Wouldn't it make more sense that it's there to refine us, to teach us to pray and depend and to trust and to worship and to conform us into the image of his son? Or put it this way, to prepare us like a bride for her groom when Christ returns, to deal with whatever impurity in our heart, bring it to the surface, to skim it off? Church, it's not that we're just supposed to have joy in trials. That's not what James is saying. He's not looking at people who are going really hard times and saying, be more joyful. That's not what he's saying. He's saying because we're Christians, we can have joy in the midst of trials. If you think about it. And he's calling us to think about it. And that's what we do every time we take communion. We think about it. He who did not spare his own son for us. And when we look at his suffering, his body was pierced, his blood was shed, it gives context to our suffering. Because Christ suffered, any suffering we go through is just temporary on our path to glory. 
Our suffering is not our end. It's just a means in our shaping because he suffered. And God uses suffering to accomplish great things. And what did God accomplish through the suffering of Jesus Christ? Our redemption. Our forgiveness. And what will he accomplish through our suffering? Us being conformed in the image of his son. Who doesn't want that? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would give us a new attitude when we face trials and difficulties, that we would not be complainers, that we would not pout in self-pity, but we would look to a God who is sovereign over it all, knowing that you're using this to shape us, to reveal sin in us, to deal with it, to get us to grow and depend on you and pray to you and trust you and worship you. And we would lean into that and we would find the pony and whatever... uh, difficulties you send our way and we would be a people that have unshakable joy that we would not be wrecked by any suffering that we go through because of the suffering that you went through pray this in your name amen